in writing, relationships are never static. In other words, they're always moving, they're always developing for better or for worse. Uh, from friendships to work relationships to relationships that may end in marriage, relationships move. They, they get better or they get worse. They move towards greater commitment or collapse. And the same can be said of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. There comes a time when every human being must respond to the free offer of the gospel. To use the words of Joshua, we need to choose this day whom we will serve. And even if we are believers in Jesus Christ, it's helpful to put that question to ourselves today and ask, where is my relationship with Jesus Christ today? Where is it moving? Is it getting better? Or is it getting worse? Am I growing closer to Jesus? Or am I drifting from him? It is this turning point that Jesus brings us to in the climax of his life sermon. This whole episode in the, in the ministry of Jesus, both that miracle and the sermon that accompanied it, it became a defining moment in the relationship between Jesus and his followers. And we begin to see a change in the Gospel of John from, from here on out, from here really through chapter 12, we see an emphasis on those who believe in Jesus and those who end up deserting him. And what we see in chapter 6 is this striking contrast between the early part of the chapter when Jesus has this crowd of almost 20,000 people following him. Remember, John tells us it was 5,000 men. That's not counting women and children. So there's this contrast to a crowd of almost 20,000 that's following him at the beginning of the chapter, and in the next day, at the end of the chapter, it ends with Jesus now alone with 12 disciples, and even one of those, says Jesus, is a devil. And what we need to understand is this historical record of what Jesus did and what he said and how these people reacted. It's, it's not just a historical record. But it's a paradigm for the spiritual experience of, of all of us. In, in other words, we're all brought to a defining moment like this. How we respond to Jesus will determine our standing with God. And in the end, what Jesus underlines here is that there's only two responses to Jesus, the bread of life. You will either embrace him by faith, trusting in him, believing that you are a helpless sinner in need of salvation, or you will stumble over him. 
You will turn back and you will no longer walk with him because his claims are simply too much. You see, the claims of Jesus, just they can't be left out there in the abstract. What Jesus says to us can't just be left dangling in midair, as it were. Jesus presses his claims on us forcefully so that we all must respond to the challenge of the gospel. Don Carson, reading on this chapter, says, The Bible never allows people to remain neutral before God. The idea that someone can remain neutral before God is a complete fallacy. Jesus makes exclusive claims and he puts himself squarely at the center of those claims. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And so what I want us to think about this morning is these two responses to Jesus, the bread of life, where you will either respond to him in unbelief or you will embrace him and believe in him. The gospel will either offend you and make you angry and cause you to stumble over it, where it will be like food for your hungry soul. And so let's think about these two responses to Jesus. And the first one we see, and, and this now becomes a theme in John's gospel, the first one we see is unbelief. Unbelief. John begins at this point in his gospel to really hone in on the characteristics of unbelief. And what we see is how the unbelief of the people is manifested in different ways. Uh, we see different expressions of it that seem to develop throughout the passage. And we need, again, we need to remember that uh, the day before, after the feeding of the 5,000, people were saying, this is the great prophet. And they wanted to make him king by force. And so here are people, they're acknowledging Jesus as prophet and king. And we're thinking, okay, they're, they're, they're on the right track. And yet this passage ends with them deserting Jesus. They seemed to believe in him. And the question is, how did they get from pointing to point B. And as we walk through these steps of unbelief, we need to be putting the question to ourselves: does, does this in some way describe me? Doesn't necessarily mean we're not a true believer, but these characteristics of unbelief can in some way resist, exist in our hearts. But perhaps the harder question is, does this describe me in some way, and may I be on the path 
to deserting Jesus? Have I maybe come to him on my own terms and not on his terms? Am I on the path to deserting Jesus Christ? The first expression of unbelief we see among these people is what we could call religious self-reliance. Religious self-reliance. John gives us this important detail in verse 59. He tells us that this whole thing took place at a synagogue. Now he's highlighting to us that these are religious people. These are church-going people. These are people who would say, yes, I believe the Bible is the word of God. These are people who, on the surface, look like us. They, they were conservative, Bible-believing people. They were concerned about the history of their nation. But it becomes clear almost right away that they don't see themselves as sinners in need of a Savior. That they saw themselves maybe as, as good, decent, religious people who, yeah, well, they weren't perfect, but they just needed a little help from Jesus. Maybe they looked at the Bible simply as a list of rules that they thought they could keep for the most part. And we see this self-reliance come out in their response to Jesus. Jesus, he confronts that materialism that we talked about last night. They were just after another meal. And he says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Jesus is saying, look, I am ultimately what you need. I am the living bread. You need me, and I am not something that can be earned. He goes on to say, the Son of Man has to give it to you by an act of his free grace. It's a wonderful free offer of the gospel, but listen to their response. This is believe back in verse 30. You know, verse 30. Uh, here's their response to that. They ask this, and let me read it to you the way it appears in the Greek. What must we do to be working the works of God? What must we do to be working the works of God. You see, that's religious self-reliance. They thought they had power in themselves to come to God, to earn his blessing. And Jesus is saying, no. You can't even come to me unless the Father enables you. You see, Jesus strips us of misplaced notions that we can contribute anything that would count toward our salvation. And friends, I think if we look closely at our lives and our hearts, 
How often are we guilty of this? We may see that something's not right in our life. We may identify a sin in our life. And instead of running to Jesus Christ, what do we do so often? We think, okay, what must I do to be working the works of God? We look to ourselves as though we can get our lives together instead of running to Jesus Christ. Religious self-reliance. You see, we, we won't embrace a Savior. We won't run to Jesus unless we see ourselves as helpless sinners who desperately need him. We see their unbelief progress. Their, their self-reliance then gives way to attempts to manipulate Jesus. They attempt to manipulate him. Now, Jesus, of course, cannot be manipulated. And that's what eventually frustrates them and makes them angry. In verse 29, Jesus calls them to believe in him. And then in their response, we see this subtle attempt to manipulate him. They wanted another meal, and they were going to get it. Listen to what they say. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Do you notice the subtle manipulation? You notice how they even cite scripture to try to get what they want? Yeah, what you did yesterday was great, but Moses did something greater. Can you do that for us? My friends, this too can often be our response to Jesus. If we see ourselves as self-reliant, decent religious people who just need a little help, then we don't want to hear Jesus' claims about our need for forgiveness of sins and sanctification and holiness. And while Jesus is not physically present with us for us to attempt to manipulate him, we have other more subtle ways. We can do it in our minds when we form an idol of the Jesus that we want. A toned down Jesus. A Jesus who's there to give us the material things we want. A Jesus who is there to solve all of our problems. It's a constant danger. It may sound strange to say, but we can form an idol of our making. A Jesus of our liking. And it's helpful to remember that when Israel made the golden calf, they thought that was a representation of the true God. It was an alteration of the true God. It was their vision of the true God. And friends, we can do the same thing. We're surrounded by it. 
much of the American church worships an idol of their own making of Jesus and not the true Jesus. And it's a temptation for us as well. But when it becomes clear that to these people that Jesus would not be manipulated into giving them what they wanted, their unbelief then progresses and finds its expression in grumbling and disputing. Uh, verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am bread that came down from heaven. Uh, verse 52, the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? We read those passages from Numbers, and in, in the Hebrew Bible, there seems to be a play on that word for grumbling or murmuring, because the word means to murmur with discontent in a quiet voice behind someone's back. But the Hebrew in Numbers says they complained in the hearing of the Lord. In other words, these people think that they're complaining behind the Lord's back, and, and we could say the same thing is true here, because we read in verse 61, Jesus, knowing himself that his disciples were grumbling. That word conveys obstinacy, stubbornness, a veiled anger. You see, the point both in the book of Numbers and here is that they're grumbling and disputing among themselves, but ultimately they're grumbling and disputing against Jesus. And that's a reminder for us that when we grumble and when we complain, there is no such thing as a neutral grumble. When we sort of complain to ourselves, who are, who are we really complaining against? How often our complaining is a veiled, subtle anger at Jesus for not giving us what we think we need. And these people here grumble and they dispute because Jesus dared to tell them that they are helpless sinners who didn't need more food, who needed a Savior. This grumbling and disputing then gives way to outright offense. Verses 60 and 61, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Friends, I think this is its good for us to understand, uh, not just for our own hearts, but as we share the gospel with people. The gospel is not so much hard to understand as it is hard to believe. 
You see, we, we can understand the words but not believe the message, and the same is true when we share the gospel. For the proud in heart, the, the gospel becomes a stumbling block. That's the literal meaning of this word offense can mean to stumble. It gives us our word scandalize. Does this cause you to stumble? Does it scandalize you that Jesus says you are a helpless sinner and your only hope is to feed on him by faith? You see, Jesus is either a rock of refuge for those who believe, or he is the stone of stumbling, a rock of offense to those who are perishing. In 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8, Peter talks about the privileges of the believer, what all that they have in Jesus Christ. But then he says, But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You see, here again is this idea that there is no neutrality before God. Jesus will either be our cornerstone, our rock of refuge, or he will be a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And again, I think we need to ask ourselves today, is there some Biblical truth, is there some claim of Jesus today that you are chafing under? Is there something that Jesus claims that is offending you, that is making you angry? It's a reminder of our need to bow before him and submit to him. But lastly, and most tragically, we see these expressions of unbelief end in the ultimate expression of unbelief, of desertion. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The message was simply too much for the vast majority of this crowd, and they left Jesus Christ. They had begun to follow him on their own terms. They had their own, in their own imaginations, their own version of what Jesus would be and what he would do for them. And when Jesus offered them himself when he gave him that gave them that glorious free offer of the gospel they chose to leave him they deserted the one who was the very bread of life the one who was offering them everything 
see, friends, the gospel is so often an offense to people because it crushes our pride. Jesus tells us that without him we are lost and we can't do a single thing to help ourselves. How many times did he repeat it in the sermon? He said, you can't even come to me unless the Father enables you. You can't come to me unless the Spirit draws you. Friends, Jesus will not be manipulated. He will not be turned into an idol of our own making. And the reason that Jesus presses these claims so hard on these people is because they were proud unbelievers. He's saying to them, apart from the gracious work of my Father and my saving work and the Spirit's power in bringing you to me, you can do nothing. You see, this is what the gospel does. It humbles us under the mighty hand of God. Jesus tells us salvation is all of grace or it's nothing at all. And that's why they grumbled then and that's why people grumble now. That's why people stumble over Jesus. That's why people desert Jesus. But this passage ends with, with hope, with encouragement, with a glorious confession of faith. We hear it from Peter, and in it we see true belief in Jesus. And so, finally, and more briefly, let's think about the response of true belief in Jesus. Now, what I want you to notice here is this is a brief yet eloquent expression of faith in Jesus Christ. And I think what should strike us here is that we have this extensive record of the unbelief of the crowd. And yet two verses, two verses of true belief in Jesus, two, two verses in the longest chapter in the New Testament. Devoted to Peter's confession. Jesus asked the twelve, Do you want to leave too? And Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And I think that the there is a textual variant here in the Greek and um, I, I think what Peter actually says is you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's recognizing Jesus as the anointed one. He, he's thinking in terms of Psalm 2. But again, back to that question, why so brief? Is John being negative here Devoting so much of the chapter to the unbelief and the grumbling and the complaining, and then Peter gets two verses. Why the brevity? Now, a true Christian profession of faith 
is brief. Because as Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, a Christian is someone whose mouth has been shut. A Christian is someone whose mouth has been shut. A true Christian has had their eyes opened by the Spirit of God to see how helpless and hopeless we are. He leads us to let go of that self-reliance, to let go of our attempts to manipulate Jesus and simply embrace him for who he is. We know that there's nothing we could say, there's nothing that we could offer to him. We simply cast ourselves on him and his finished work. We don't want to grumble. We don't want to dispute. And there's definitely no deserting him. There's a feeding on Christ by faith. But there's a nuance to this, isn't there? Because we know that our faith, it's never expressed in its perfection. We know that even as true believers, we, we still want to rely on ourselves. We still at times form an idol of Jesus in our minds. And how often do we grumble and, and dispute? But there is one thing we will never do. We will never turn back and no longer walk with him. That's what separates a true disciple from a false disciple. A true disciple will never desert Jesus. And we can't even boast in that fact. Because as Jesus says throughout this section, I will lose none the Father has given me. The Spirit is the one who gives life. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. It's the triune God who saves. It's the triune God who keeps. And so we may stumble in our weak faith. But in the end, we keep coming back to Christ. And saying, Lord, forgive me. Cleanse me. Restore me. And when we are asked, do you want to go away as well? We can echo the words of Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's pray together. A gracious and merciful God, Lord, we thank you that you do not allow us to remain neutral before your blessed Son. Lord, may we bow the knee to him today. Lord, may you shut every mouth and may we simply bow before him and depend upon his mercy and his grace and his strength. And we thank you that you are pleased to condescend to speak to us through your word. 
We pray that you would grant us all grace now that we may not be mere hearers of your word, but doers also. Give us the grace of your Holy Spirit that we may believe what has been proclaimed to us. May we bring glory and honor to your name in all that we do. Conform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.